We always hear about natural disasters um, occurring all over the world. Uh, but the more I read and the more I saw, it's they're de definitely not just natural disasters. There is a, a huge human influence in, in whether disasters become as big as what they are. Vulnerabilities always increase the risk to disasters. And I just wanted to know more and, and learn more and, and to see how I could help. Welcome back to another episode of the Protect the World podcast. Every month, I connect with a different not-for-profit organization that's making the world a better place. My goal is to learn about the issues they're tackling, interview the founder or director, and then share their stories with you. But I don't just want to share their stories. I want to contribute to their work as well. If you'd like to help me, you can sign up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes. The voice you heard at the beginning of this podcast belongs to Nat Kiemski, Program Director for All Hands and Hearts in Turkey. Back in February, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck Turkey, resulting in the deaths of over 50,000 people. Within 24 hours, All Hands and Hearts were on the ground assisting with recovery efforts and determining how their volunteer-led disaster relief program could best contribute to the needs of the Turkish people. Six months on, and Nat and her team are still there, working hard on a daily basis to help rebuild a region that is still reeling from February's disaster. All Hands and Hearts' goal is to stay when everyone else has left and to assist with the long-term recovery needs of disaster-affected areas around the world. When the earthquake struck in February, it was the leading story for most media outlets, and it remained in the news cycle for a week or so, as survivors were still being pulled from the rubble. However, chances are you probably haven't heard much about it since. But the need is still immense. In the city of Kahramanmarash alone, where Nat and her team are based, there are still over 700,000 internally displaced persons who have been unable to return to their homes. In this episode of Protect the World, I speak with Nat about her experiences in Turkey and her thoughts on disaster relief more generally. And I'm also joined by a very special guest a little later in the episode. Before we get into the podcast, a quick heads up that there were some technical difficulties, which meant I sort of had to switch between the main audio and the backup audio in some parts. And I couldn't quite manage to always edit them together seamlessly. So if there's a few sections that sound a little bit funny, that's what that is. In general, I'd ask you to be a bit forgiving with the audio quality on this podcast. We'll be featuring people from all over the world with varying standards of recording equipment and internet connections. So be sure to focus on the quality of their words, not the quality of their audio. Also, I'm still getting the hang of this whole podcasting thing, so go easy on me. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get stuck into this second episode of Protect the World, featuring Nat Kiemski from All Hands and Hearts. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Nat, to join me and talk about All Hands and Hearts and the work that you're doing in, in Turkey. Um, we'll get into the specifics of the project in Turkey in a moment, but I'd like to ask to begin with, um, 
all hands and hearts as an international organization. What is it that they're broadly trying to achieve? So all hands and hearts attend to disasters immediately after uh, for a response program, uh, speaking with the community, addressing the needs and seeing uh, where we can assist. And then uh, we look for longer term recovery programs uh, where we can. So at the moment, we have been in Nepal uh, since the earthquake in 2015 and Mexico since 2015 and the Philippines as well for many, many years. So uh, we try to uh, respond to many disasters all around the world um, and then where we can do longer term recovery projects. So. Our mission is to, to kind of stay when everyone else goes and to address the longer-term recovery needs. Great. Yeah, I'm keen to hear about those, uh, the, the longer-term transition and, and that sort of process. When, when did the organisation begin? How long has it been around, do you know? So All Hands and Hearts uh, has been around since 2017. So previously um, it was All Hands Volunteers and then Happy Hearts uh, Foundation. So they joined together in 2017 officially um, but worked closely together um, in response to the Nepalese earthquake. Ah, cool. So that's where the name comes from. It's a, it's yeah. <laughs> cool. That's interesting. Um, and how long have you been working for them? Were you involved in other projects before Turkey or is this your first assignment? So I've done two projects as volunteer. Um, so in the Philippines in 2020, um, Nepal in 2022. I had my first staff position last year in the Bahamas and um, my first role as program director this year. Brilliant. Ah, oh, cool. So you're obviously enjoying the, the organization and the work then by the sounds of it. Yeah, I love it. Um, like many people that join the organization as a volunteer, um, you come once and, and you really don't want to leave. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, before we get into the, the work that you're doing, I was wondering if you could sort of situate us in Turkey because it's an interesting sort of place geographically. It's a central point between Europe and Russia and the Middle East and Africa. Um, and my understanding is it's sort of a real melting pot as a result. How would you describe Turkey for someone who doesn't know much about it? Turkey is definitely a very fascinating country. Um, working on the program, I haven't had a chance to explore as much as I would like to. But everywhere that I have been, um, it's so different from one another. Every city, every region is very different. Um, there's a lot of history, obviously. Uh, there's a, a lot of natural beauty. And the thing that stands out to me the most is just the people. Uh, the Turkish people are some of the most generous people that I have ever met. And they're always uh, finding ways to offer you something, uh, whether that be a cup, cup of tea, um, an ice cream, uh, anything. They're just very generous people. Fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing part of the world. Um, take me back now to the, the earthquake in, in February. What exactly happened and what was the situation like on the ground when all hands and hearts arrived? So... On February 6th, there was a really large earthquake, uh, 7.8 magnitude, uh, followed by a couple of smaller earthquakes, um, still really, really um, severe. So it caused a lot of destruction um, in many cities in the southeastern part of Turkey and also Syria. Um, all hands and hearts arrived 
on the 7th of February, so the day after. Um, it was our disaster assistant response team arrived immediately to start assessing the need and to see uh, if and how we could assist. Um, it was quite challenging at first to figure out where um, we could assist, where, the, where we could make an impact. Um, so there was the disaster assistance response team on the ground for the first month um, with some local volunteers who had uh, volunteered for All Hands and Hearts in other programs around the world. And we officially opened up the program on March the 6th. So about uh, exactly one month after the disaster, um, we opened to volunteers and, and staff team. And we've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah, that's a fascinating process. Tell me about that the, the disaster response team. Like you obviously have people at all hearts and all hands and hearts that are able to um they when a disaster happens they just jump on the next flight how how does that work that's pretty much um how it goes so there's a roster of volunteers um who sign up um that they would be willing to assist if there was a disaster and um they get contacted um, and to see their availability, to see when they can, uh, if they can um, come out to uh, wherever they're needed. Um, and it's just, it's a really amazing group of people. So uh, in Turkey, we had uh, volunteers come thinking that they might come for a couple of weeks and they ended up uh, filling in staff roles and really helping getting the program started. And yeah, we ended up being here for a couple of months. So yeah. Wow. And so but did you come in later or were you part of that initial team that came in? I came as a volunteer, not with the disaster assistance response team, um, just as a regular volunteer for the program on the 9th of March. So pretty much when the program started, I came um, not knowing how long I would stay for. Um, but yeah, here I am over four months later. And so your uh, your position though is, is coordinator of the program coordinator, is that right? Program director? Um, program director, yeah. So I oversee the field work that we do plus the operations. And yeah, we have a staff team of 11 at the moment. So we all work together um, and we have volunteers. We, were, we had around 35, 39 volunteers um, at the when the program was at its peak, um, we have kind of slowed down a little bit now. I think that always happens. There's a lot of volunteer interest uh, straight after a disaster. Everyone wants to come and help. Um, but uh, now that the earthquake isn't so much in the in the news as it as it used to be, um, we don't have as high a volunteer interest. But we still have around twenty twenty five people at the moment. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Tell me about the, um, I guess, the cycle for you as an organization versus the, I guess, the media cycle, because yeah, I guess after the earthquake, you would get a lot of international attention, probably lots of donations, people wanting to come forward. But when, when does all hands and hearts need the most attention in a country? Um, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, straight afterwards, we, we do have a lot of um, donor interest and, and volunteer interest. Um, and then it kind of does die down after a couple of months. 
And then we really just rely on word of mouth. Um, so people coming to volunteer, telling their friends, um, posting on social media. Uh, we're lucky enough as an organisation that many times if people volunteer at one program, um, they want to return and volunteer at another program or they tell their friends about their experience and then they, their friends end up having a look and wanting to come and volunteer. So, yeah, after the media stops giving a disaster a lot of airtime, um, then we, we really rely on, on word of mouth and our volunteers. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, word of mouth was how I found out about you guys. So I know a couple of people who've, who've worked for you. So yeah, fantastic. Um, you've, you've sort of touched on it already, but walk me through the entire process of responding to a disaster from start to finish. Because as you said, it's sort of triaging at the start, targeting whatever those urgent needs are, and then it eventually transitions into a more sort of long-term rebuilding phase. Is that right? Tell me about that, that whole process. Yeah, so at the start, uh, it depends on the disaster, um, but for example, if there were hurricanes um, that have affected a lot of homes, um, we'll get in there and, and speak with the community and see what support they need. So sometimes that's uh, mucking and gutting of the houses. Um, it can... Could you explain what mucking and gutting is? So really getting in there and kind of removing the debris and, and everything else that is affecting the, the house. And then we often um, focus on education and, and schooling, uh, rebuilding schools. Um, so that is our primary focus. And so we look, uh, look speak with the community and, and see whether there are some longer term recovery projects that we can do. Um, so that could be schools, community centers, or um, longer term uh, home repairs. Fantastic. And... In Turkey at the moment, could you walk me through the, the specific projects that you have on the ground there? At the start of the program, we were partnering with local organisations um, and just helping out wherever we can. Uh, so there was a lot of um, donations that needed to be sorted, uh, food that needed to be prepared and distributed. And then we partnered with a local uh, architecture organization who designed a community structure. Um, so we built the community structure and now we're almost finished the second one. Uh, and then the need here is constantly changing. So a couple of months ago, there was a huge need for some camp improvements. We build stairs um, and ramps to allow people to have better access to wash facilities. Um, privacy barriers around the wash facilities. Uh, it's very, very hot here now and there's not a lot of shade in the camps. Um, so we've been building um, shade structures and we're hoping to continue that a fair bit over the next couple of months. Um, there's also a huge need for psychosocial support um, and although we can't support this need directly, we can indirectly through community engagement initiatives. So it's the first time the organisation has um, done community engagement initiatives as a main um, scope of work. We've been doing activities with children and, and women, um, sewing workshops, uh, ball games, uh, embroidery and friendship bracelets, really um, trying to offer people a, a chance to um, step out of their everyday life, um, offer some distraction, help with the boredom, um, and that's 
a very popular scope of work <clears throat> with our volunteers and also with the community. Yeah. Um, could you tell me what the the city sort of looks like at the moment? Because um, it's it's been say six months ish since the earthquakes. How many people are sort of living in in camps and this kind of thing still? What does the city look like at the moment? So the last statistics that I saw was that there's still over 700,000 um, people displaced in the city that we are based. Um, so it's, it's a mixture of people living in camps um, and also uh, container settlements. Um, a few months ago, everywhere you looked, there were just tents, um, every green space, every public area, um, on the grounds of schools, on the grounds of mosques, uh, tents next to people's houses. Um, but there has been more of a push to get people in more formalised um, settlements, uh, but there is still uh, a lot, a lot of people living uh, in tents and they probably will be um, for the foreseeable future. The city itself, there's a lot of high-rises in the city that are just that even though even the ones that are not um, destroyed are still um, very vacant and probably will be for some time. Uh, there's a lot of damage or people just aren't, don't feel comfortable moving back into high-rise buildings. I was going to say, is there a lot of fear around more uh, earthquakes and that kind of thing? Do you get a lot of sort of long-term trauma in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a couple of months ago it was probably more obvious um, people were, were sleeping in their cars because they were too afraid to to stay inside so even if they didn't lose their homes they would opt to sleep in a car um, there's there's been a lot of um, aftershocks around the city um, and it is a tectonically active area so there are often um, small earthquakes so yeah, it's definitely triggering for many people and, yeah, lots of people aren't, aren't prepared to go back into their, into their homes. Yeah, yeah. And after an event like this, how long roughly would it take to get the city back to a, a position where you couldn't tell that there was an earthquake? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's going to take years and years here um, the rebuilding process is is very way off um, they're, they're still um, cleaning up the city there's still buildings everywhere um, just half standing and uh, local businesses not just homes uh, uh, so many people have been affected here um, everyone you talk to has been affected to some to some degree by the earthquake uh, so I th Generally speaking, uh, like container villages, uh, they're looking at about three to five years um, that these will be transitional homes until rebuilding can really, really get started and, and completed. Yeah. Could you describe what a container village looks like? I'm sort of picturing shipping containers. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, similar to shipping containers, um, but made out of different materials. Uh, they offer more protection from the weather. Um, it's very hot here. It's going to get very cold again. Um, it's also incredibly, incredibly windy, which is very challenging living in a tent. Um, there's 
some local organisations looking at different sustainable material options, um, especially in some of the cities where there's not a lot of people yet living in the containers. Um, but yeah, transitional homes for the next three to five years is the goal with the um, container villages. And uh, I guess in that, say, month, two month, three month period after the earthquake, how do you go about engaging with local communities? Do you have translators on the ground? Are you mainly working with NGOs who are already there and established initially? What's the that initial process like? Uh, so we're lucky enough in our staff team to have four Turkish staff members um, who just are the biggest support for people like myself who have very, very, very little Turkish. Um, but like you said as well, we do we do work a lot with um, some established NGOs and local partners. Um, it's definitely very challenging. There is very, very little English spoken in this region, um, but with the support of our, our Turkish staff, um, we definitely get by and Google Translate is, is very helpful as well. <laughs> Fantastic, I love that. Um, I imagine for many of your volunteers, it's probably their, their first time in this kind of situation. How soon after the disaster do you send in volunteers and do you sort of prioritize more experienced ones initially and then bring in uh, newer ones or how does it work? Yeah, so um, on this program, we did prioritize uh, those with all hands and hearts experience at the start for the first couple of weeks. It was, there was a lot of challenges at the start. Uh, it was freezing cold and obviously in a place where so many people have been displaced, it's really hard to secure a base and a, and a safe place for people to live, um, for our volunteers to live. Um, so we were camping from the very start. We're still camping now, um, but yeah, really wanted experienced volunteers or volunteers with specific skills that, that we needed at the start. And then after a couple of weeks, uh, when we kind of figured out more how we could help and we could welcome um, some more unskilled volunteers or people that haven't volunteered before. So we've had a really good mix here. Um, this week we welcomed our 200th volunteer, which, um, yeah, quite a, quite a large number. Some people stay for a week and some people stay for three months. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Tell me, what, what are those skills that you're looking for at, in the beginning? So after a disaster, what sort of people do you want targeting you and reaching out? So here we really valued people that could speak Turkish. Um, and then obviously people with some sort of construction skills are always really valued um, or disaster management skills. and But really we we welcome people from with any any background um any skills at all um some people like everyone makes such a difference here and contributes in in some way um and helps us find creative ways to to help the community um this past week we had uh, a volunteer who was really really good at origami which you wouldn't think would be a <laughs> a sought after skill but um Working with them, we were able to teach other volunteers um, the art of origami and then work with kids to um, pass on those skills, which was really, really impactful. So uh, all skills and all experience are, are, 
are welcome and really helpful. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like it would be a hit with the kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, and how is the, the education side of things going? Are schools back up and running? How, what are, what's, what's schooling looking like where you are at the moment? Uh, they are back up and running. Um, they, there's a very long break over here due to summer, so three months. So at the moment, schools aren't operating, um, but they are up and running. So in many cases, um, there's like selected schools that more kids from the community are going to. Um, and a lot of the smaller schools are, are still closed, but uh, kids are going back to school. And are there many sort of holiday programs and that kind of thing? Are there things for kids to do in their free time? There are some um, opening up now uh, and hopefully more and more will open up, um, but there is still such a need for um, things for the kids to do, um, which is why our community engagement initiatives are are really popular with the kids. Um, we'll go one day and, and they ask us when, when we're coming back. Um, so, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, could you run me through what, an average day looks like for one of your volunteers from sort of start to finish? What, what might they get up to? So the day starts for most people around 6.30 in the morning. Um, everyone wakes up, has their breakfast, packs their lunch for the day, um, get their tools ready, their PPE, um, whatever they need for the site, um, depending on which site they're going to. Um, we put some music on um, just after seven to try and wake up anyone that's still sleeping um, and get everyone motivated for the day. Uh, everyone gathers around 7.25 uh, for a 7.30 leave and then go to which, whichever site that they're on. So that might be construction work or working with local partners um, or community engagement initiatives. And then um, they get picked up from site around 3.30 um, to return just after four. At 4.30, we have a group meeting with volunteers and staff, uh, talk about the work from the day, um, do shout outs for people, um, safety concerns, uh, any any meeting notes that we need to discuss as a group and also the work for tomorrow. And then we have dinner together and then generally there's some sort of activity um, going on of a night time. So that might be trivia or a film night um, ping pong or just people uh, sitting around um, enjoying the sunset and, and each other's company. Oh, fantastic. That sounds, that sounds like a really a good balance between, um, I guess, because it, be, it would be quite hard, um, hard work during the days and, and tiring and, I guess, confronting sometimes as well. So having that, that balance is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most... Most people will go to bed by about 9 p.m. just absolutely exhausted from the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, your, your volunteers, when people apply to become a volunteer, is there much sort of preference over where you get placed or is it you submit an application and you're sent to where you're needed? Um, so it is up to the volunteer. So on our website, we have listed all the active programs um, and so uh, volunteers can apply through the website. <clears throat> if uh, the, that program is full, uh, we will send uh, a suggestion of, of other, other volunteer programs that, uh, that have space. 
Brilliant. And is it a competitive process or is it sort of anyone who wants to volunteer would likely get a placement somewhere? Uh, anyone who wants to volunteer is is absolutely welcome. Brilliant. There you go. So if anyone's looking for a, a change of pace, um, there's there's always opportunity there. Yeah. This seems like a good spot to pause the conversation with Nat and introduce you to our special guest for this episode of Protect the World. Last year, while traveling through Latin America, I spent a bit of time on the front lines of the Venezuelan refugee crisis, filming a video about an amazing humanitarian organization called On the Ground International. One of the coordinators at that organization was Lucy St. John, who you're about to meet. And at the very same organization, I also met Grant Clark, a civil engineer who'd spent more than a decade working on disaster relief efforts all around the world. Grant had spent much of this time coordinating projects for all hands and hearts in Nepal, Mexico, Mozambique, and Guatemala, and he was a strong proponent of their work as a not-for-profit organization. I kept in touch with both Grant and Lucy, and when I saw that Lucy was volunteering for all hands and hearts in Turkey, I reached out to start arranging this podcast. I wanted to focus on Nat and her role as program director in Turkey, but I also knew that I had to get Lucy on to chat about her experiences as a volunteer as well. She was more than happy to oblige, and she joined me from Poland, where she'd just begun a new role with All Hands and Hearts as part of their response to the crisis in Ukraine. Lucy, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Protect the World podcast. Um, I believe you've been working as a, a volunteer and a staff member for All Hands and Hearts in uh, in Turkey and also now in Poland with their, their Ukraine response there. So tell me, how did you first hear about All Hearts and Hands? Have they been on your radar for a while or was it more of a spontaneous decision? Um, I had heard about them from a friend, Grant, um, who I met in Colombia last year. Um, he'd volunteered and worked with them as well and he told me that they're a great organization. Um, so when I was job hunting, I searched them um, and there was a job I went for, sadly didn't get it, but I went to volunteer um, and did end up getting a job once I was there in Turkey. So yeah, it's, uh, I only heard about it last year, so it's relatively recent on my radar. Very cool. Um, how long were you volunteering before you transitioned into the, the staff role? I was volunteering for about a month and a half before I transitioned. Fantastic. Very cool. Yeah, I actually heard about All Hands through Grant as well. That was the first place I'd heard. And then yeah. <laughs> when I saw you volunteering for them, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That'd be a, a cool one. Nice. Um, what was the volunteer application process like? Did you apply specifically for the project in Turkey or were you sort of happy to be sent anywhere? Um, yeah, so you apply for a specific program um, and it's really, really easy. Literally anyone can go. Um, all they ask is that you get a background check. Um, so they they know you're actually able to be um, living with other people in a safe environment. Um, but yeah, really, it's for unskilled volunteers. So you don't have to have any skill, which I think quite a lot of people worry about. We mostly do construction. So if you do have any construction skills, then it's very useful, but it's not necessary to. Yep, great. Um, and yeah, were you able to sort of pick where you wanted to go or? Yeah, so on the website, um, it will come up saying like all the different programs. Um, and then you can apply to all of them if you want to, or just one of them. Um, and then usually, it depends how many volunteers that they're accepting on a program. Um, 
with Turkey at the beginning we had about 40 and then we lowered it to 30 volunteers um, and I know that other programs especially the ones in the US they usually only hold about 10 to 15 volunteers um, so yeah if there's space for the volunteers and then, then you'll get accepted um, and if you pass the background check. Very good, cool. And tell me, what were your first impressions of Turkey when you arrived on the ground? Do you remember your first day there? Yes, I remember it. Um, it was really wet and cold, which I was a bit naive about. I hadn't been expecting it to be so cold. Oh, come on, you're from the UK. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I was thinking, Turkey, it's sunny. <laughs> but I was so wrong. <laughs> so I had to go to Decathlon and buy a, um, a bigger, bigger jacket um, and a bigger sleeping bag because <laughs> we were all intense um we're still intense there um so it was a bit um bit of a shock to be honest getting there but it was it was they they uh told me exactly what to expect but i think getting there it still is a bit of a um kind of diving in the deep end because it was raining it was wet it was muddy and we were sleeping in tents we didn't have any proper shelter apart from tents so it was it was it was a very unique experience but it was cool yeah, interesting. Um, and how how soon after the earthquake did you arrive? When when did you get there roughly? Um, so the earthquake was on the sixth of February, and I got there on the thirteenth of March. Okay. So yeah. like a month and a bit after. And what was what was it like there at that time? Like how much recovery had taken place? How much was still to be done? What what did it sort of look like there? Um, there was still a lot of recovery that needed to be done. Um, yeah, everyone was very much in the response phase. So like all the NGOs working and the government, we were still um, like making sure that everyone was set up in tents, providing food, um, providing shelter, yeah. Um, and then just making, yeah, making sure that they, they had the essential needs um, in order to survive. And like I said, it was very cold. So they really did, um, they did need shelter, um, like proper shelter. Um, so yeah like they would i mean they're still kind of um there's a lot of demolition going on at the moment even even now um because even the buildings which didn't get destroyed in the earthquake they'll need to be destroyed because they weren't built to the correct standards yeah that makes sense um i'd like you to describe what an average day looked like for you while volunteering for all hands and hearts but i guess really try to paint a picture for me. Like what was the first thing on your mind when you'd wake up? What'd you have for breakfast? How'd you feel at the end of each day? All of those, those kinds of things. So run me through a, a whole day. Um, I mean, firstly, every day is usually a little bit different, um, but the general just, you wake up. Um, when I was first there, we were waking up at about 7 a.m. Um, so not too early um, compared to some other programs. Um, so wake up at about 7 a.m. We'd be intense of about, three to four people at the beginning um, and yeah you'd go to the toilet at that time we were only sharing one toilet between like 40 people <laughs> um, and one shower between 40 people so that was uh, wouldn't a wouldn't want to be the person having to clean that <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly um, and then you would have breakfast which would usually just be um, like some jams and chocolate spread and bread um, cereal fruit that kind of thing very kind of do-it-yourself um, then you'd always clean up after yourself as well. Um, and then we would have the team meeting, so the volunteer meeting, and that would just kind of be describing what we're doing for the day. Um, you'd sign up for where you're going that day because we'd have a few different sites that we would volunteer at. Because um, within Turkey, you would, because 
I think a lot of All Hands projects, they work on their own projects, whereas we were working with other partners. Um, so one of the partners that we worked with was TRC, which is a Turkish Red Crescent, which is like the equivalent of the Red Cross. Um, so most of my days I spent, when I was a volunteer, I spent at TRC, which was in their warehouse. Um, so kind of sorting through donations which were being sent over um, and then packaging up them up and so that they were easily, um, you could just grab them and know exactly what was in those boxes. Um, so it was, it was sometimes a little bit monotonous to work, but it was really like fun. The people that you were with always made it fun. Um, and like the partners, like the guys at TRC were really, really great and fun. Um, so yeah, sorry, I got a bit sidetracked. We'd have to do anything. Then we would, um, basically get onto the shuttles. We'd have shuttles, which would come and pick us up from the base camp where we were living, um, and then take us to the sites that we were working at. So yeah, like I said, I was always at TRC, so I'd usually go there. Um, but it, you usually don't go to the same place all the time. I went there quite a lot because I was one of the team leaders, which means that you're just kind of the liaison between all the staff at base and then the partners on site. So if anything went wrong, you were the person to talk to and the volunteers like came to you for any questions. Um, and it was nice to have a bit of consistency for the staff members to send the same person there each time. Um, so yeah, I usually went to TLC, but there were other organizations which did similar things, or you'd be like in the kitchen, like helping to cook food to hand out to refugees, uh, not refugees, sorry, IDPs, um, internally displaced persons. Um, so yeah, it's really important not to say refugees, so I feel, I feel really bad about that. <laughs> They're not refugees. <laughs> um, then, so yeah, then we'd get to site around eight-ish, um, although we actually changed that timetable because Turkish people don't really start working until about 10. Um, so we ended up delaying everything a little bit. Um, that sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nice. Um, and then we'd get back to the base camp at around five or six, I think. Um, and then we have dinner. Um, at the beginning, we had dinner prepared by another organization, which was preparing food for the IDPs. Um, and then when we moved base, because we started off in a very horrible base, to be honest, it was like surrounded by warehouses. Um, and then we moved to a base which was surrounded by olive trees, so very different vibe. Um, and then we got catered, so people would cook, I think a local, a local couple, maybe not a couple, but a local like organization in the village cooked for us each evening um, and just delivered the food. So that was great. Very nice. Cool. Um, are there any memories in particular from your time in Turkey that I guess really stand out for you? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, whenever I look back on my time in Turkey, I feel just very lucky because it was all such an amazing experience. I mean, definitely there were hard times, but for sure there were some amazing days. Um, I think my favorite memory is when we were at the new base, we were in a nice like um, natural surroundings and then two two men who one of our Turkish staff members had kind of connected with a little bit um, they came to the base and they bought two massive trays of baklava have you had baklava before yeah yeah, yeah it's like my favorite dessert <laughs> um, so that made me very happy but then uh, it was like an evening where we'd had quite a few new volunteers arrive um, and having the baklava arrive was just amazing and these people they had been through so much hardship um, and just like trauma 
and yet they I think it just really represents the Turkish culture because they were just so giving still even though we like obviously we were there to help but also we're all quite privileged being able to be able to help like that so it just felt like they were yeah just so kind and generous I can't really like put it into words like how great that community was and their culture is um but yeah it was a really good kind of exemplifying act to show what what the culture was like um and then after that so they'd given us the um trays of backlever and they were talking to us um and then we had a karaoke night um and then one of our staff members who came and did i don't know what it's called it's like when you have these two um I can't know what it is, but you have these two like fireballs, and then he's like swinging them around, like fire twirling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, what cool. is going on? Um, but it was a very nice vibe, and it just kind of, I think, being on an all hands project, you forget how rare it is for such, like, just to be in in such close proximity to so many really kind and amazing people. And that night just kind of reminded me how how fun and kind everyone was, um, and also yeah. The Turkish men were just great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nat was saying exactly the same thing. That was when I asked her to describe what Turkey was like, like generous and, mm. um, yeah. and those sorts of things were the first things she was yeah, saying. Yeah. yeah. Were there any particularly tough days? Did you ever think about packing up and heading home or anything like that? I never I never thought about packing up and going home, but there definitely were tougher days, like when at the beginning when it was just so cold, there were nights when it got to minus two. Um and quite a few people weren't prepared for that. Um, and it was just like you'd wake up just freezing. <laughs> you just wouldn't get warm. Um, so I think really it was just the weather which made it made it really difficult. But I think I think what was actually really good about All Hands and Hearts is that there were quite a few organisations which did try and find like proper accommodation in like hotels or something. Um, and I think it was quite a good experience to actually be able to like say like obviously we've, we've had nowhere near the amount of like hardships that um the turkish people went through but to be able to live in tents at least like you had the idea of what they were going through in like the moment that they were living in tents too so yeah so like obviously there's no comparison but i think if i'd been in a building and then i'd come out and like started like working with the idps i'd just felt awful <laughs> being like oh well i've had a good night's sleep but you've been freezing, so it kind of like whenever I'd like wake up like that, I'd be like, at least we're doing it for a good reason. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, how would you describe the other volunteers that you're working with in Turkey? What are what are the people who work for All Hands like? Um, I mean, I think we've all got like the common um, trait that we all want to be there to do some good. Um, but honestly. Beyond that, anyone can go their own direction. Like everyone is so different and unique. Um, but yeah, everyone is so kind in general. Like obviously there sometimes might be a few people you're like, oh, how did you end up here? <laughs> but generally like everyone is just like so kind and usually so funny. Um, and I always say this, I, I would always have to do an orientation when I was staff member to all the new volunteers, um, kind of talking about diversity and stuff. Um, and I'd always say how in an all-hands project, it's such a rarity that you will be surrounded by such a diverse group of people in one small um, like space, um, and always just to kind of take advantage of that and like learn from everyone. But everyone 
yeah, it was it was just a great learning experience for everyone, I think, because you are just put into close proximity with people you might otherwise not be friends with. Yeah, definitely. What was what sort of age range are we talking with the, the volunteers? Honestly, from like 17 to 76, I think was the oldest. 76? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I hope I'm still going into yeah, you know, I know, disaster right? zones when I'm 76. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty, that's they're amazing. Cool. <laughs> and they like think nothing of it. It's like, they're like, yeah, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and tell me, you're now in Poland. Um, you're not in Turkey anymore. How did that happen? And um, yeah, what's what's it like there? So I left Turkey because I applied for a visa extension and sadly got rejected. Um, so had 10 days to leave. Um, and then I got a new position with All Hands, um, which actually isn't based in Poland, but it's useful to be in Poland because I'm working with both the Poland and Turkish teams on kind of um, putting together proposals to send out to potential donors. Um, talking about like what we have done in both Poland and Turkey and then what we want to do if we get the funding for it. So it's, it's another interesting role, which I'm enjoying. It's very different from Turkey. I can imagine, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose the weather might be might be similar. <laughs> well, the weather is actually, it's all right, but Turkey was so much hotter. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Because, um, yeah, I think Nat mentioned you guys are planning on or hoping to extend the work in Turkey and I assume in Poland as well. Is that you're in that process at the moment, are you? Yeah, so we've just extended to November, but it looks like we'll probably keep keep extending, hopefully. Yeah, very good. Um, and final question, what would you say to someone who's thinking about volunteering for All Hands and Hearts but isn't sure if they'd be a good fit? I would say just apply. Um, I think everyone leaves All Hands and Hearts feeling like as cringy as it sounds like they've learned something about themselves um and even if you don't learn something about yourself you'll definitely learn some new skills you'll definitely learn about a new culture um i'd always say like if you're unsure just put a shorter time then like maybe just do a week um because usually you can extend once you're there um but yeah 100 percent, go for it if you're thinking about it there is no reason there's usually no good reason not to do it um you're helping people you get to meet an amazing group of people um yeah there's only positives really it might be a bit of hard work but you feel great about it at the end of the day so definitely do it fantastic that is a ringing endorsement um well thank you so much lucy is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention or emphasize um no i think i think i've covered it all but yeah just just come volunteer with us we it's a great organization i think i did I did like a master's in humanitarianism, which is very critical of any organization. Um, and obviously every organization has its flaws, but all hands and hearts, I would say, is very, it's, it's a good organization to volunteer for, for sure. Yeah, fantastic. All right, well, all the best with your future work and um, wherever you end up next as well. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Lucy, I really appreciate it. No worries, thanks for having me. So there you go. If you've ever seen yourself as a potential disaster relief worker, or if you're just looking for a change of pace, a volunteer position with all hands and hearts is the perfect way to find out if humanitarian work is the right fit for you. You'll need to organize your own transport to the location, but once you arrive, your food and accommodation is covered while you're working. And you can rest assured that you'll be making a real impact wherever you end up. Okay, back to the podcast. I want to ask you 
I, I guess I was sort of doing a bit of research on the earthquakes and Turkey's history and that kind of thing. And I was, I, I suppose, a little bit surprised to hear that there was a similar earthquake back in 1999 that killed about 20,000 people, I believe. Um, what, do, what are your thoughts on sort of the recovery process as a whole in Turkey? Do you think if, say, 20 years from now, there were to be a similar earthquake, would we see the same levels of destruction that we have seen and loss of life or are you, are you confident that they'll be able to sort of build back better in that regard uh, we hope that um, there has been a lot of lessons learned um, from this year's earthquakes um, that the that they will build back better with more resilient buildings uh, like you said there has been major earthquakes before um, and there's always earthquakes in this region so investing in more resilient buildings is is an absolute need here in turkey and although i can't i don't know the details of the the building um plans um we would hope that that they are building back better yeah yeah absolutely okay um i'd like to turn the focus towards you now, if that's okay, Nat. I'm, I'm interested with this project to find out a bit more about the kinds of people who work for NGOs and, and what sort of motivates them and that kind of thing. Tell me about your journey into this role. Did you dream of coordinating disaster relief when you were a little kid or? Um, probably not from when I was a little kid, but um, a number of years ago, it definitely started to be on my mind. Um, like you, I, I always enjoyed traveling um, and my interest in traveling took me to some really interesting places around the world. Uh, at the same time, I was studying a postgraduate uh, degree in environmental management. Um, and during that time, I was in Sri Lanka um, in an area that was heavily affected by the 2004 tsunami. And then it really started making me think more about um, disasters and I started studying uh, Masters of Disaster Resilience and Sustainable Development. Um, it, I guess what really interests me was we always hear about natural disasters um, occurring all over the world, uh, but the more I read and the more I saw it's they're de definitely not just natural disasters. Um, there is a, a huge human um, <clears throat> influence in, in whether disasters become as big as what they are. Um, vulnerabilities always increase the risk to disasters. And I just wanted to know more and, and learn more and, and to see how I could help. Um, so I met some volunteers when I was backpacking through the Philippines a number of years ago, I met some volunteers who were um, with, it was just uh, all, all hands volunteers at that stage and they told me about the organization um, and I found it really, really interesting. Um, but it kind of slipped my mind for a number of years. And then I, when I was studying my Masters of Disaster Resilience, I looked into it again and, and started looking deeper and, and decided to volunteer in the Philippines. Um, so that was just before COVID and I went for a couple of weeks and then I had to come back 
to Australia for something and I just had fallen in love with with the program and with the organization and kind of told my boss um, that I'm going back for it for a few months. Uh, unfortunately, COVID prevented that, but um, as soon as restrictions were lifted, I went to Nepal to volunteer there. Um, so that program was building a health center, which was a really interesting experience. And from there, I then after that, I had my first staff role, which was in the Bahamas last year uh, for Hurricane Dorian uh, recovery program. I'm interested in that um, dynamic between sort of um, resilience and, and preparation versus responding after a disaster. I don't know if you're able, but could you give some examples maybe of um, a case where a disaster has hit and the region was well prepared versus not very well prepared and what what that sort of um, spectrum looks like? I think when you look at the 2019-2020 black summer bushfires in Australia, uh, the scale of those fires were absolutely huge and obviously had many, many um, devastating effects. I also think there was a potential for a lot more lives lost than what actually occurred. I think um, we have learnt so much from past, event, past events. Um, we've understood the risk better, we've prepared people better, um, empowered people with knowledge um, so that they can uh, build resilience in their own homes, uh, in their own community. Uh, early warning systems have improved um, evacuation routes. Uh, there's obviously still so much more to learn um, and hopefully through those events uh, we learnt stuff that could prepare us for, for future summers but I think it is an example of, of building resi resilience over time. Yep. And for earthquakes, and I guess particularly in, in the global south, what are the, the key priorities for rebuilding afterwards? Is it, is it about materials? Is it about the height of the buildings? Is it about how people respond when an earthquake hits? What are the, the key sort of focus areas in, in building resilience? There's a lot of uh, research uh, information designs on um, earthquake resilient buildings and materials. Uh, so investing in these is really going to build resilience. Um, but additionally, just understanding the risk more, um, empowering the people, uh, disaster risk reduction training, all of these things combined can um, build resilience in the community, not just in the buildings themselves. Yeah. Was there a particular moment or person that inspired you to, to get into this kind of work? Maybe not a moment, but um, I, was, I spent a fair bit of time in Papua New Guinea uh, working in my previous work. What was that role? Um, so I was working in science. So um, I was managing a lab over there. And it was the first time that I had spent a lot of time in another country um, and really getting to know the community. Uh, so uh, it was not, comp not straight after uh, quite a lot of earthquakes had happened in Papua New Guinea, but the effects were definitely still being seen. Um, and just 
kind of speaking with the locals and 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 seeing how there was there was so much opportunity uh, to empower them, uh, which probably wasn't happening at that stage. Um, there was priorities in in other areas. It just really motivated me more to um, to get more involved. Yep, fantastic. And touching more on motivation there, I guess. So what, what would you say it is that, that motivates you and gets you out of bed every morning? So why this and not a nine to five office job back in Melbourne? Um, so probably two things. Um, firstly, the volunteers that we have on the program. Uh, it's really amazing to see people come from all over the world. And as we've already discussed, some people, it's their first time. Um, and seeing how being on a program um, affects people, it's it's really inspiring and motivating to to keep the program running, um, to to keep it running as good as what we can. And secondly, just um, finding ways to to make some sort of impact in the community, um, some sort of difference. Obviously, there is such a huge need here that sometimes it feels like it doesn't matter what you do. It's, it's never enough. It's, it's not making a big enough difference. But even small projects, um, they can make a huge impact. Uh, one week, we built some very basic stairs um, up a little hill in one of the camps and by the end of the day, those stairs were being used by um, pregnant women. So many people uh, found it so much easier to access wash facilities just with this small project. Um, and when you see the impact of something like that, you realise um, just how much collectively all these little small things can make a huge difference to the lives of the people in this community. Oh, that's brilliant. Just going back to that first one quickly, could you talk a little bit more about the kinds of impacts that you see on volunteers and how how they evolve and change over over their placement? Sure. Um, so sometimes it can be learning different skills. So people come with no construction skills and they get to learn how to use um, different power tools. Um, just the basics of construction that I think a lot of people really appreciate. Um, we have volunteers sending us messages after they return home and, and telling us how they've used skills that they've learned on the program to make repairs um, at their houses or something similar. And then I think that there's something really special in um, being around like-minded people all the time. People who, like you, have um, dropped what they're doing to travel across the world um, to try to help. Uh, we live in a camp that is very basic and has a lot of challenges, but everyone is always so positive, um, trying to help one another, trying to learn from one another, um, building connection and, and building community. I don't think you see that um, in most places in everyday lives. And I think uh, it has a real power to, to influence uh, each individual that comes through the program. Yeah, that sounds exactly like the, the experiences that I've had visiting similar organizations to, to you. It's meeting those like-minded people. I mean, that's how I 
heard about all hearts all hands and hearts and um yeah it's there is something really special about the people who decide to do that kind of work and, and spend their time that way absolutely um i want to ask you about and this can be either in turkey or uh, a previous project but i want to ask you about your toughest and most challenging day or experience that you've had uh, in the role but i also want to ask you about your best and most rewarding day or experience and i guess i'll, I'll let you decide which one you want to talk about first i think the best moment the best moment for me um is just seeing the impact on the community i think um last year when i was on the bahamas program um at the end of the program the organization had been there for three years um and had built such uh, strong relationships with with so many members of the community, um, not just the people that we were working on their homes, but also um, local business owners, um, just everyone in the community really knew uh, the purple shirts and, and were really grateful and we had really amazing relationships. So uh, when the program finished last year, it was the final program uh, for the Bahamas and just, speaking with the community there um at at the end it was i yeah can't really express um what it feels like for them to have so much gratitude um even gratitude like not gratitude towards me but gratitude to to everyone all the volunteers all the staff members and all the impact that that had been made collectively over a three-year period um, that was really, really special. And although All Hands and Hearts has only been in Turkey for a couple of months so far, um, moments that I can I can see those connections building um, here, uh, probably my favourite memories. Um, and it's the same. It's it's not just with the community that, that you're helping, um, but everyone. Um, taxi drivers, uh, local business owners, shopkeepers. Um, it's seeing someone that you recognize and smiling and waving and just knowing that um, the connections that you're building are as important for them and, and you as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it sounds like connection is the, the, the theme there that is really standing out. Fantastic. Um, what, what about on the on the other side of things? Have you had any particularly challenging or tough days in the role? At the start of the program, um, we didn't have a lot of time to plan ahead. Um, we were still trying to find ways uh, to help, um, to talk with local organisations, um, to see how we can make an impact effectively and also... Um, have environments that were safe for our volunteers at the same time that was when we had um, so many people uh, wanting to come over and help uh, so a really fast growing program um, while still trying to find um, effective work that we could be doing and then um, with not much notice we also had to move bases which um, isn't an easy task to do. To kind of build a home in a field 
um, in the middle of a, a, an open space uh, and, and to think about every little detail that goes into, into building a home. Uh, that was quite challenging because we really didn't have much time to do that. Uh, but it just really highlighted the everyone came together. We had all our volunteers and all our staff members helping us set up the home in a really, really limited uh, time frame. Um, we dug toilets, uh, we set up tents, we built, built a kitchen and it wasn't just uh, us but like local community members that we had never met. Um, so in a village that we had never been to before, we didn't have any connections, any relations. Uh, we had neighbours offering, you know, power, um, helping us find water. Everyone kind of came together and within two days we had built this kind of amazing home. So it, it was definitely a challenging time. Um, and the weather at that stage was really, really uh, difficult to um, be camping in. It was freezing cold, uh, heavy, heavy, heavy rains. And But at the same time, we all were very mindful that there were hundreds of thousands of, of people living in tents um, in the same conditions and they didn't have any any options um, they couldn't leave if they wanted to uh, so yeah that was a really challenging part of the program that sticks out in my mind but also it was really beautiful to see everyone come together and to and to get it done yeah that that sticks out in my mind I remember in the days after the earthquake reading the the news that was sort of coming through and yeah, the, the descriptions of the freezing cold temperatures at night and looking for people and that kind of thing was really yeah vivid. But um, that sounds like an in incredible story in building the house and that kind of thing. You'll have to send me through some photos if you've got some. I'd love to see it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. Um, and how do you know how long is uh, the project's going to be still running in Turkey or is that sort of an open question? Uh, so officially we're here until early October, very early October, um, but we're discussing uh, extending that uh, here in Marash or maybe looking for other places that we can support. Um, it is, there's lots of things to be considered. Uh, the need here is always changing. Um, so at the moment, it's really hot. So we're working on like summarization and providing shade for people. Uh, obviously, when it comes to September, October, uh, that's not going to be as much of a need. Um, so we're working on ways that we can see how we can support uh, towards the end of summer um, and with the community centres. Uh, obviously, funding comes into it and also uh, the volunteer interest that we spoke about earlier. Do you have any involvement in, in Syria as well or is the situation just too volatile there to be sending people? Yeah, too volatile um, to be sending people. Yep, yep. And what are your plans if, if the project wraps up in October? Will you be on to the next disaster location or will you be looking for a change of pace, do you think? Uh, I would like, I mean, take a, a, some time off to probably do some travelling or just uh, 
take it easy for a little while. Um, but yeah, definitely want to uh, continue this journey. It's, it's, I really enjoyed how much I've learned here um, and, and want to continue. Oh, that's great to hear. Where have you got in mind for your travels? Anywhere on the bucket list in particular? Um, there's so many places around here. Um, <laughs> I want to. I want to go to Jordan, um, Georgia, and um, probably Egypt. I haven't been to either of those places, and they're quite close here. So, cool. That sounds great. All right, we're almost done, but I have a couple of like quick fire questions that I like to ask everyone. Are you keen for that? Sure. Okay. Question one, uh, you're allowed to pick one person, living or dead, and you get to live their entire life from start to finish. So you pause your life right now, you live their entire life experiencing everything that they experienced, and then you get to come back to your life with all of their memories. Who do you choose? Wow. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I don't know why, but I've always <laughs> really, really um loved oprah so <laughs> I, yeah um she's she's had quite an interesting life and i think uh the last few years she's um done a lot of interesting uh podcasts and a lot of uh, interviews that i've really uh connected with um and i've read a lot of her books and yeah really really enjoy um some of the things that she talks about. So I, I think it would be quite interesting to, to have lived her life. Yeah, she's definitely had an interesting life. I was scrolling Netflix the other day. I think she's got a, a long interview with Michelle Obama or something like that. I think I added that one to my list. Cool, that sounds, sounds very interesting. I haven't had Oprah before. You're the first one that said that. So good work on being unique. Thank you. <laughs> All right, question two. You wake up tomorrow and find you've been elected as president of the world. You've got full power and everyone's sort of supportive of what you're doing. You don't need to compromise to win votes or anything like that. What's the first thing you change about how we as a global community respond to or prepare for disasters? I think um, prepare for, I, there is such a opinion that disasters are very much natural um but if you i remember when i was doing my masters there was a statistic that um really stuck with me um and that it although disasters in like developed and undeveloped world there's not a huge difference in um the percentage which occurs in both um the effects are so much disproportionately affected um, by the underdeveloped countries. Um, so it was like 95% of deaths and livelihood loss uh, in the underdeveloped countries. Um, so I think that really highlights uh, just how much vulnerabilities increase the risks of disasters. Uh, so I think, yeah, focusing on the underlying vulnerabilities that exist um, can really decrease the risk and can make such a, a huge difference um, in the effect of disasters. Do you have any theories on, on the best sort of ways to, to improve that? Is it increasing foreign aid? Is this UN intervention? Is it within the countries themselves? What, what's the sort of best avenue as a global community? I think really understanding the risk 
um, is is a huge one as well as like just everyone kind of coming together. So a mix between government um, businesses and and the local communities themselves, NGOs, everyone coming together um, and partnering to uh, reduce the vulnerabilities. Great. Um, and we're almost done, but two more questions. Uh, firstly, what are some other organizations that inspire you or whose work you admire? I get most inspired by um, the smaller local organizations um, here in Turkey, constantly hearing of, of yeah, really small organizations that are just doing um, what they can to make a difference with some really creative ideas, creative solutions. Um, and I can only imagine um, how many smaller organizations around the world uh, are doing amazing things. Brilliant. Fantastic. And a final question for you. If people were to donate money towards All Hands and Hearts and their disaster relief project in Turkey, what sorts of things would that money go towards? So, yeah, we're really proud that uh, 95% of the of every dollar goes to directly to the programs. Um, so that is uh, making a direct impact on the community. So building... Uh, the materials required for building, um, so here in Turkey, building the community centers, building the shade structures, um, building the building the stairs and the ramps for camp improvements. Um, in other programs, it's 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 the materials required to to rebuild schools or to um, repairs on homes, do repairs on homes. Fantastic. Well. The idea with this podcast is that every month I want to feature a different not-for-profit organization and then I also run a Patreon where people can sort of support the project and half the money that comes in helps me to keep sharing more stories and to hopefully get back on the road and make videos about NGOs as soon as possible. Um, But then the other half goes directly to those organizations that are featured. So on behalf of all of the awesome people who support this, I'll be sending over that donation to All all Hands and Hearts in Turkey very shortly. Um, a big thank you to, to everyone who, who does support this project and an even bigger thank you to you, Nat, for taking the time to chat with me today about all of the amazing work you're doing. It's, it's really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for um, having me on and, and, and for the donation. That's really, really appreciated. And uh, we can continue to um, make as much impact here as we can. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? Did, any questions I should have asked that but didn't or anything else you want to talk about? Um, not necessarily, but yeah, just touching on a point that we have um, discussed is just the experience of volunteers that come to our program. So if anyone is interested in volunteering, uh, take a look at the website. Uh, there's lots of opportunities um, all around the world and it's, it's such an amazing experience that can not only change the lives of the community members but can really um, change your life as well and we are open to everyone um, and yeah you should also come and, and see us somewhere. Brilliant yeah I, uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by all, all hands and hearts so I'm definitely going to be keeping that one on my radar for future years. I'd be very keen to get involved at some point. So to anyone listening, all, always, there's always an option for you. 
All right. Thanks so much, Nat. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. That was Nat Kiemski, Program Director for All Hands and Hearts in Turkey. I found the work of Nat and her team to be highly inspiring, and I hope it gave you a bit of an insight into what disaster zones are like after the media dies down and the world turns its attention to something more captivating. There were three key points that Nat made which I'd like to draw attention to. The first was this one. So the last statistics that I saw was that there's still over 700,000 um, people displaced in the city that we are based. Um, so it's, it's a mixture of people living in camps um, and also uh, container settlements. Um, a few months ago, everywhere you looked, there were just tents, um, every green space, every public area, um, on the grounds of schools, on the grounds of mosques, uh, tents next to people's houses. Um, but there has been more of a push to get people in more formalised um, settlements, uh, but there is still uh, a lot, a lot of people living uh, in tents and they probably will be um, for the foreseeable future. 700,000 displaced people, six months after the earthquake just in the city of Kahramanmaraş alone. This emphasizes the dire importance of sustained relief following a disaster. The money and resources directed towards rescue efforts in the immediate aftermath of a disaster are vital for ensuring the survival of as many people as possible. But we need to ensure that a similar amount of attention goes into rebuilding people's livelihoods in the period that follows so that we don't still have people living in tents six months later. If you're someone who contributes to humanitarian relief efforts in the wake of a disaster, that's brilliant. But stick with that story. Find out what the situation is like on the ground a few months later. And you may just find that this is the time where your donation can have the greatest impact. Indeed, by contributing to recovery efforts, you can help build more resilient communities and minimize the impact of the next natural hazard before it strikes. The second key point I'd like to discuss is this. Although disasters in like developed and undeveloped world, there's not a huge difference in um, the percentage which occurs in both. Um, the effects are so much disproportionately affected um, by the underdeveloped countries. Um, so it was like 95% of deaths and livelihood loss uh, in the underdeveloped countries. Um, so I think that really highlights uh, just how much vulnerabilities increase the risks of disasters. People who study environmental geography tend to agree that there's no such thing as a natural disaster. Rather, there are natural hazards, which become disasters when they interact with vulnerability and inequality. Imagine identical floods impacting the Netherlands and Bangladesh, identical earthquakes striking Japan and Haiti, or identical droughts hitting the US and Somalia. The human impact, and especially the loss of life, wouldn't come close to being comparable in any of these scenarios. 
More than 90% of deaths from natural hazards in the last 50 years have occurred in the global south. But there's a reason that you don't really hear about it. It's been estimated that 45 times as many people would have to die in an African disaster for it to garner the same media attention as a European one. So seek your news from independent media outlets that treat all humans equally. If you heard more about the five people who drowned in a submarine looking for the Titanic last month than you did about the 600 asylum seekers who drowned the same week while trying to cross the Mediterranean, you might want to reassess where you're getting your news from. Finally, I want to emphasize this point. And then I think that there's something really special in um, being around like-minded people all the time. People who, like you, have um, dropped what they're doing to travel across the world um, to try to help. Uh, we live in a camp that is very basic and has a lot of challenges, but everyone is always so positive, um, trying to help one another, trying to learn from one another, um, building connection and, and building community. I don't think you see that um, in most places in everyday lives. And I think uh, it has a real power to, to influence uh, each individual that comes through the program. This is such an important point. Protect the World is focused on inequality and biodiversity loss, two topics which are pretty depressing to spend a lot of time on, if I'm honest. But there's a reason I do it. It's the people. And in the case of biodiversity, it's the natural world as well. Whenever I visit NGOs, they are without fail filled with the kindest, friendliest, most generous people you'll ever meet. And that outlook is infectious. In the West, our societies are increasingly centered around individualism, individual solutions to individual problems. If we just manage our time better or improve our mindfulness, we'll be able to cope with the stresses of day-to-day -day life. But that's bullshit. Life's too short for coping to be the goal. More often than not, it's not about self-improvement. It's about increasing connection. It's about finding your people and working to achieve something that matters to you. If you're going into your job each day and finding yourself getting frustrated at the things people are preoccupied by or by the kind of work that you're doing, then start making a plan to get out. And I really wanna stress that I'm not making any kind of moral judgment here. If you love what you do, whatever it is, then please don't stop doing it, unless it's like torturing puppies or something. But if you don't love what you do, then do something else. And maybe that something could be heading to All Hands and Hearts website and signing up as a volunteer. It's a fantastic opportunity for anyone with itchy feet who wants to make a meaningful contribution in the lives of others. If you'd like to support All Hands and Hearts, you can also donate to them directly by visiting allhandsandhearts.org and you can follow them on the usual social media channels. On behalf of all the amazing people who support this project, I was able to make a donation of around 100 US dollars to All Hands and Hearts Project in Turkey. If you'd like to help me give more money to more amazing NGOs in the future, please consider signing up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes for as little as $5 a month. Another big thank you to everyone who supports this project and to Nat Kiemski 
for being keen to chat with me about the incredible work of her and her team. I hope you found All Hands and Hearts as inspiring as I did. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Protect the World.